Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Happy Wednesday and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. Here's a quick announcement. Our June Hot-Scented and Passion-Driven Inspirations for Better Living digital magazine designed to help moms build a better future for themselves, their families, and loved ones is now live at inspirationsforbetterliving.com. This month's theme is Happy Graduation, Dream, Achieve, Become, and a Father's Day special tribute. The magazine offers inspirational stories from our dedicated team of experts to help you navigate your current situation with confidence in your motherhood journey as the COO, if not the CEO, of your family. So please go to inspirationsforbetterliving.com to treat yourself to some engaging, entertaining, and enlightening stories. You deserve it. As for our radio show today, my guest for this morning is Dominic Domingo. Dominic is a veteran Disney-featured animation artist and live-action filmmaker whose award-winning narratives, nonfiction essays, and short stories have been included in anthologies. His young adult fantasy trilogy, The Nameless Prince, launched in 2012 through Twilight Times Books, have been capturing imagination since. His book, The Seeker, represents Dominic's foray into mystic visionary fiction. It is a universal parable about transformation that speaks to the journey we all share. In the language of the soul, how stories became the means by which we transform, Dominic shares how we are products of the stories we've been exposed to as individuals. Collectively, humanity is the sum of its history. More potent than persuasion by far, storytelling changes minds by touching hearts. We may or may not be fully aware that in all cultures, stories and narratives permeate our life every day. From the literary arena through cinema, through social media, branding, advertising, political campaign, and propaganda. Dominic's artist journey reveals the transformative power of narrative and what it is to be a born storyteller. And with a call to action to embrace the power of story in our lives. For our kitchen table conversation this morning, Dominic and I will be talking about his remarkable life's journey and his two new books, The Seeker and Language of the Soul, and the unique insights on why are we truly driven to tell stories in the first place and how have stories become how we transform. Good morning, Dominic. Happy June, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing today? Morning. I'm very well. How are you? Doing wonderful. It is exciting to have you with me this morning to talk about this wonderful books. The Seeker and the Language of the Soul are fascinating reads. They are beautifully written, very insightful, engaging, and a definite page turner, I might say. The information mm-hmm. shared is extremely inspiring to the heart, mind, body, and spirit. So congratulations on this release. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, very exciting. Very, very exciting. So let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Okay. Well, obviously that's a pretty broad question. So <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to dive straight into the premise of the book, I think it's a great opportunity to point out, you know, life is story. So any one of us could tell our life story through a number of given lenses, right? I could mm-hmm. tell you the tragedy version of it. I could tell you the uh, I guess, victorious version of my life. But to stick with the premise of the book, uh, I'll give you a quick rundown in terms of like my craft, you know, my storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's through image or word, and how I arrived at writing two, two books, the two books mm-hmm. we're here to talk about. So I joke, you know, I was, <laughs> I came out of the womb with a pencil in my hand. And uh, somewhat true, I've sort of always drawn, I, I think all kids draw in school, but I found a lot of solace in it and um, probably drew more than other kids and was rewarded for it. Uh, I was given a typewriter at seven by Santa Claus. 
and told it should last me through college, which of course it did not. <laughs> uh, e popped off almost immediately, and it's a pretty important key. So um, I developed a nice callus on my finger, you know, poking on the, the prong where the E should be. So I've always apparently been a storyteller, but I didn't identify as such. I, I just probably assumed, you know, everybody drew and told stories. <clears throat> and, I, you know, in looking forward to college, I chose Art Center College of Design for the simple reason that uh, it was 20 minutes away. I did not investigate other schools. Uh, a friend of mine had been kicked out of public high school and <clears throat> went to Saturday High, it's called, at Art Center, and invited me to come along. And we both were like, man, you know, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. We were painting uh, naked models for one thing and <laughs> uh, really just decided we, we, you know, had a future. And so I went to art school just because it seemed better than working at the DMV or flipping burgers or, frankly, I was doing a lot of concrete work with my dad, a lot of side, you know, mm -hmm. pretty hard labor for a 17-year-old. So I chose uh, illustration as my major. I... Happened to have interned at Disney Feature Animation, which I guess we'll get to that in a minute. But a wonderful 14-week internship and was paid to, you know, go to the zoo and draw animals, to learn from Ruben Aquino, who animated Ursula from uh, Little Mermaid, and just surrounded by artistic genius. And uh, paid more money for this internship than I had ever been paid at Del Taco or you know, laying concrete. <laughs> and so I was in heaven, but I went back to school to finish up and get my degree. And then, of course, when I graduated in 91, the job was not quite waiting for me. They offered me a job at the end of the internship, uh, but I had to hustle a little bit to get back in. Mm -hmm. And when I did, it was on a little film to become known as Lion King. So I was brought in as a trainee on Lion King. I'm really going to shorten this up, but I spent 11 years there at Disney Feature Animation on Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback, Tarzan, Little Match Girl, and One by One. The latter two are from the up, uh, meant to be for uh, an upcoming Fantasia. Anyway, so I worked in Paris and L.A., and uh, after 11 years, I decided to, <laughs> to break free and make my own live-action films. Mm -hmm. So I was a writer-director for several years. I had a couple films that did well in the festival circuit and garnered distribution, uh, but, you know, making a film with a crew of hundreds is, is pretty daunting. So I remember one day just thinking, well, I do have two original screenplay credits on SAG IMDb films with distribution. That's called a writing resume. So I put my writing on the front burner. Like I said, I got a typewriter at seven and suddenly I realized, you know, I'm a storyteller and not just uh, an artist or an illustrator. I've got my own stories to tell. So that's when I wrote The Nameless Prince, which is a urban fantasy novel. It launched in 2012. It's done very well. And then the sequel, Royal Trinity, came out in 2016. So to really fast forward, I now identify as an author, and I'm trying to, you know, keep that on the front burner. And uh, rather than dealing with crews of hundreds on a film set, I really just enjoy sitting in a coffee shop. Uh, and <laughs> drinking coffee and eating chocolate and, and writing on my little laptop. So that's where I'm at. Fantastic. That really sounds wonderful. Were there in your family, anyone in your family that were also into storytelling, I guess, or artistic? Let me produce it because that was the initial mm -hmm. journey, of, right? So were there anyone that was just a natural-born artist? <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, I, you know, in our pre-interview, we talked a little bit about when I identified as a creative being or a storyteller or an artist. And, you know, when was that moment of discovery? For me, I was like a fish breathing invisible water. I, like I said, I kind of assumed everybody did what I did, but I credit my parents. You know, my father was very blue collar, as I said, very practical. Mm -hmm. He's 100% Italian. He was a concrete worker, but he was also the kid who won poster contests in junior high. So my parents were both artistic, but I think, of course, like so many <laughs> in this country, he kind of put his dreams on the back burner and raised a family of six. And uh, But he always had it in him, and I did discover some really amazing paintings in our attic one time, and I realized there is part of him that wasn't expressed. Now, my mom, on the other hand, was, you name it, a 
cosmetologist. She had a wig shop when I was a child. She had a costume shop throughout the 80s was always costuming the latest ice capades, you know, the <laughs> local theater and the ice capades. So, yes, we grew up in a chaotic household with costumes on the couch, you know, flung over mm-hmm. every possible chair and table, <laughs> just brimming with creativity. And to my mom's yeah. credit, you know, she took her four kids. She was an early soccer mom before soccer moms existed. You know, she <laughs> drove us around to piano lessons, gymnastics, in my case, right. painting. I took my first oil painting class at seven. So, yes, I was encouraged 100%. That's fantastic. Well, sounds like it was a natural that creativity is was uh, is in the genes, basically, pretty much. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, my dad's Italian, and I, they did start the Renaissance, you know. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I often think of that, even though he wasn't in touch with his own creativity, <clears throat> a lot of it comes from his side. Uh, and again, just it was encouraged, to put it that way. Now, I will Perfect. say when I went to art school, my dad, like so many, thought, you know, have something to fall back on. That's not practical. That's correct. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had to talk him into it for sure. But I said, Dad, match me. <laughs> I will save because <laughs> Art Center is one of the most expensive private schools in the country. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most demanding, but it's also one of the most expensive so right. I had gotten accepted, and I said, Dad, that's no small thing. It's really competitive, and I got accepted. Right. How about, <clears throat> while the offer's still good, I save mm-hmm. up for my first term's tuition, and you match me. He agreed to that. Right, right. However, no. when I got in, I discovered I was not <laughs> eligible for financial aid because he had claimed oh. me on taxes. Oh, wow. So, wow. you know, yeah. midway through school, I would become eligible. But right. he right. went ahead and wrote the you know, tuition checks. Yeah. He grumbled about it, but I didn't hear it. <laughs> he grumbled to my mom about it. Of course, when I graduated with distinction, one of two people, yeah. Yeah. and I landed the job at Disney, he bragged that it was all his idea, sending his kid to art school <laughs> was his idea. Of course, see? Well, I think that's natural. <laughs> so it was I think encouraged, j- but they were practical as well, you know. There you go. There you go. I, I, I believe, you know, Dominic, I think you're not alone on that because I think, you know, it's natural because uh, generationally, obviously, because what comes first to mind is survival, right? And so mm. we, how are we going to support ourselves? That's the thing. Right, uh, son, you don't realize it now you're at home. You know, yeah, we're feeding you rent-free. <laughs> Yeah, right. Now, I give any parent credit that, you know, quote, unquote, allows their child to pursue anything that seemingly on the surface is not practical. I would argue that it's what matters in life, but that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Right, right, right. But that's the beauty because slowly but surely within itself, it's the essence of uh, following your dream, your creativity, you know, the authentic you. And so your stories, what you've written, be as it may uh, in fantasy in some ways, right? And then here uh, with the latest book, uh, Language of Your Soul, is reality. But the essence of it, it's that journey that we all take and partake right. uh, because of circumstances and so forth. So when did you discover that your artistic talents are uh, possibilities of stories that you can offer people? Well, again, um, I, I guess for me it was a process. I mm-hmm. didn't necessarily identify as a storyteller, although I had that mm-hmm. typewriter. And mm-hmm. I, I wrote a lot of uh, papers when I was in elementary. I would do like the Endangered Panda and the Debraza Monkey, and I would illustrate them. And, of course, I would put question and answers at the end, and then my teachers would assign them to the class. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't win mm-hmm. me many mm-hmm. friends, but... I yeah. didn't I really identify that as storytelling per se. I just really enjoy drawing. Mm-hmm. And I do know, because, again, this is a little bit in reference to the book, yeah. uh, I've, I was doing a documentary at one point about um, selfish or selfless, the pursuit mm-hmm. of art. You know, we, we talked a little bit about catharsis. And it does mm-hmm. serve the artist, but then by extension, it, it serves society. So anyway, I started interviewing just local artists at, the brewery artist complex and different lofts in downtown LA and, you know, students, mm-hmm. professional artists and getting a cross section of why people do what they do. Right. And I'm a little bit off topic here, but I, I had a hunch 
<clears throat> in my case that there was chaos in my household. Like I said, it, it was good in that it birthed a lot of creativity. But, of course, mm-hmm. there was dysfunction and alcoholism and a lot of the unsavory things sure. that are all too typical, unfortunately. <clears throat> so for me, it was a way of tuning out the chaos, going inward, finding that well-being, right, inner peace, tranquility. Mm-hmm. But then by extension, you get validation that you exist, right? You move yeah. or touch people or simply impress people. Of course, ego thrives on validation. Wow, you did mm-hmm. something good and you're rewarded mm-hmm. for it. So I think I was a shy kid. Like I said, I had four older siblings, four bigger, louder siblings that (laughs) were squeaky wheels, and I just didn't have a voice. Yeah. So I expressed myself like so many, right, through my art. And then Mm -hmm. by extension, I got validation that I existed. Right. So when I, you know, I had that hunt, and when I started interviewing artists, I was shocked. People said it in their own way, of course. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful part is so many of my students said, it's my way of loving. Yes. I never I agree imagined with that. that word. Yeah. yeah. What's that? I, I agree with that totally. And and I tell you why. Yeah. Because, Dominic, what happens is that it's you You may not realize, of course, now you do because of the things you have accomplished. But back then, your storytelling started by, uh, for lack of a better term, yeah, I'm no expert in this, like drawing, right? Pictures. That's your storytelling, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, right. Uh, storytelling does not mean you have to write 5,000 words. <laughs> right. Well, that's the point. Is it was, I think yeah. you asked me how I, ident- mm-hmm. you know, when I first identified yeah. as a storyteller. Yeah. So the yeah. image making, I didn't at all. Again, yeah. It, it, yeah. I call it the artistic journey. It's a lifelong journey. So right. for me and a lot of artists, it takes a while, A, to discover why you truly what, do what you do in the first place. Not mm-hmm. on an academic level, not how it right, serves right, right. the proliferation of mankind or how it serves the <laughs> tribe, but on what it's serving on a personal level. Right. So for me, even when I got the job at Disney and I realized, wow, I'm a cog in an enormous machine, a beautiful machine that I'm glad to be a part of that's putting out really mm-hmm. beautiful content into the universe that I believe in. I'm very lucky mm-hmm. that I never mm-hmm. had to sell out. I believed in what I was putting out into the universe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, only later did I realize, well, of course, image making it contributes to the storytelling. Right. But it is uh, a form of storytelling in and of itself. I right. actually think images can bypass the intellect, right? Mm-hmm. Image cuts to the core viscerally, intuitively, and sometimes expresses what can't be expressed in words. That's correct. And then for the patron, it creates a visceral experience that defies logic, right, and defies the mm-hmm. intellect and just simply moves people. Mm-hmm. So sorry for the long answer, but, you know, I would say in my 20s, I became aware that craft is just craft, right? Technique mm-hmm. is just technique. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's, and some people are content, truly, to just master a craft, and, again, be a cog in an enormous machine or a wrist, I call it. And mm-hmm. really, they don't maybe identify as somebody with much to say in the world. For me, mm-hmm. there was more, right? There was this calling yeah. to tell my own stories. Not Walt. I believed in Walt's vision. <laughs> I believed in all the films I worked on, but I had my own stories to tell. Right. So I think right. well into my filmmaking and my writing career, I realized, you know, it's all the same animal, whether it's a word or image. And that's the premise of my book. It's a mm-hmm. you know storytelling. Sometimes right. it's the head, the heart, or the gut, uh, and they place very different roles. But word and image together have the power to move people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. thereby change minds. I say it's a lot easier to change minds by touching hearts. Mm-hmm. Like persuasion mm-hmm. only goes so far, right? If you mm-hmm. move people, they're more likely to not dig in their heels and be more receptive to whatever your, I hate to say, agenda or your message yeah. is. Right. Anyway, right. so for me, it happened in my 20s a little bit. I realized why I did what I did. But very recently, and I'm 54 now, did I connect that with a sense of purpose and what I call like your contribution to the collective. So mm-hmm. the milestones for me are realizing why you chose your craft, what it's serving the individual, you know, how it's serving you individually. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then later you realize how it serves the collective and it really is your contribution. Some people would say your form of loving, but I just call it my contribution to the collective. Very interesting. I mean, it's the choice word, so to speak. And in 
some aspects of life, uh, society, one would say, when did spirituality got sprinkled into your journey? <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Well, I love that word. You know, it seems to be a, a hot button, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I feel like all artists are spiritual by mm-hmm. nature. It's just mm-hmm. a word. Mm-hmm. But in today's climate, obviously, it has all these other connotations. But right. to me, the spiritual journey is the artistic journey. Mm-hmm. So one way I put it in the book is if you have a craft, let's say you're a concert violinist and it's, it's a very academic milieu or you're a ballet dancer, which can be very right, strict mm-hmm. and <clears throat> disciplined and whatever it is, playing the piano, you've got to do your scales, you've got to, <laughs> right? you've got to <laughs> practice. Right. So anybody that has sort of chosen a craft to hone has been given this wonderful gift to nurture their spirituality, to get good at life. So call mm-hmm. it the emotional maturity or the spiritual evolution. It's just, these are just words, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like those artists that have chosen to pursue their craft have been given this wonderful gift of nurturing their emotional maturity and their spiritual evolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, no question sorry, about that. In my case, I, I guess, again, without identifying it, I would say I've always been a spiritual being, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, in writing the book, I really sort of, I guess, got in touch with what that looked like as a seven-year-old and what that looked like <laughs> as a weird, I was a weird kid. Yeah. The whole yeah. Uh, you know, intro to the book, because I wanted, as you mentioned earlier, wanted to let the readers know who I am and where I'm coming from and mm-hmm. where some of my worldviews and opinions come from. And yes, mm-hmm. some of it is my 20 years of teaching. I learned more in the classroom than I could have in a classroom myself. And then mm-hmm. my own journey, right? And then my mm-hmm. reading and my influence. Right. right. But, and that's uh, beautifully put, though. You see, that's a beautifully put because what happens here is that, uh, Dominic, you realize that, you know, you are a, a better student, uh, you know, when you're a teacher. It's a funny thing. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Well, you get to see, it just really speeds up your exposure. Yeah, I got to see not just the creative process in action. Well, number one, mm-hmm. on the job, all day, every day, you're seeing right. creativity in action, the creative process in action. But mm-hmm. uh, in teaching, I got to see different relationships with the creative process, right? And mm-hmm. although there are really universal milestones in what I call the artistic journey, I keep saying that, but uh, it's a very real phenomenon in, in French. It's, it is. Le chemin artistique. So if you've mm-hmm. chosen to pursue a craft and you take it seriously, there, there are these milestones. And uh, right. yeah, so I, I just got to see in hyperdrive a lot of different relationships with the creative process and a lot of different artistic journeys at large, the lifelong journey. And I keep in touch with my students, too. So 20 mm-hmm. years of teaching, I get right. to see where they land, the role that creativity ends up playing in their life, whether it's just putting a roof overhead or food on the table, or, again, mm-hmm. an individual might have stories of their own to tell, so they take bigger risks, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So right. Yeah. Definitely learn oh, more definitely. from my students than I did in our center. <laughs> uh, but you see, what's interesting, though, what you mentioned, and it is a journey like you mentioned, right? So uh, with your book and the things that you do in introspection, because life always provides a review vision. And then so when you look at it, interestingly enough, you are the, for lack of a better term, you're the mother, the father mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. students, if that makes sense. You are incubating yes. them. You are nurturing Sometimes them. Sometimes more than I would like. <laughs> <laughs> we all well, you, get to, you, see, you see them playing out parental issues or daddy issues. Precisely. You know, and, Precisely. Uh, I, yeah, I kind yeah. of, I, 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 I retreat from that a little bit. But yes, they, I, <laughs> yeah. they feel like my children for sure. Right. And, and my creations is... feel like my children, by the way. Precisely. You know, Precisely. When I'm editing and... a film... I mm-hmm. fall in love with my actors because you're spending hours in a dark room looking at their faces. Right. They right. become my right. children. Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. And what, uh, the, the, let's get one thing straight here. What happens is that you are trying to present them at their best. So you're coming back to full circle when you look back even in the journey in your quote-unquote family, Right. Your dad may have, you know, like, yeah, I can't believe he's doing this, you know. But then he knows in his heart 
he wants mm-hmm. to present you in the best way he knows how. Yes, and I think a lot of it was unexamined, but more and more I Precisely. really give them credit for and for yeah. really all, all that matters, you want your children to be happy. Precisely, and, and be the best they can be and be successful, you see. And so uh, that's the uniqueness about it because a lot of times I tell people, I say, you know, uh, when you look back, uh, when you're in the moment, you can't see a lot of things. When you, and you'll be the first one I know you could uh, uh, validate this when you are working on a, a particular project, a particular character when you're right there, the artistic, you know, you're in the zone. Uh, you don't right. see the outside perimeter. But once you finish it, yeah. Well, they say uh-huh. two, two cliches: you can't see the forest for the trees, but also hindsight is twenty twenty, right? <laughs> right. Oh, no question about that. No question about that. So fantastic. So when did you discover you are the author of your life story? <clears throat> wow, that's such a great question. Um, again, in an un- unexamined way, I think mm-hmm. I was living it right. Right, but right. in writing the book, I crystallized the journey, and I would say, you know, I think we all have little wake-up calls in life or spiritual opportunities that are laid in our path, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of my big premises or one of the things I'm passionate about is, you know, taking those spiritual opportunities. And I do think we're all learning the same lessons. Nobody's on the fast track, right? It just looks different on different people. And Mm -hmm. I think some of the lessons come in a different order, so you don't always recognize it. But anyway, I think that now and then I've had moments of lucidity where I realized, yes, Mm -hmm. life is story, and the narratives that we tell ourselves kind of manifest themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So, But in writing the book, it, it forced me to crystallize my views on things and connect dots, as I said earlier. Mm So, um, I think, again, in my 20s, I identified, I, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners will have read The Alchemist. Have you read that by chance? Uh, no. Uh, it's Paul Coelho, The Alchemist, and it's been translated into more languages than the Bible. It's done very well, <clears throat> and I was given that at a, a very formative mm-hmm. age. And um, mm-hmm. maybe that was a milestone where I realized, wow, some of those milestones he talks about really resonate with me. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. talks about your, and it, it's just his terminology, but sure. uh, your personal legend. And if you pursue your personal legend, the universe conspires in your favor. Mm-hmm. I learned that's the beauty of youth, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all want to help young people, right? right. So you don't realize what you're sort of being handed. But it does feel like you're working with the universe and dovetailing with destiny and fate. And mm-hmm. there's an alchemy to that, right? Then mm-hmm. disillusionment sets in, and that's sort of what The Nameless Prince is about, is overcoming disillusionment. So anyway, in my writing, in little milestones like having read The Alchemist, I think mm-hmm. I started realizing <clears throat> that, yes, life is story. So, I mean, in a million ways, I, as you know, I wrote a nearly 300-page book about all the different <laughs> ways in which life is story. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's the stories we absorb by default, whether it's a certain slant uh, that's assigned a news story on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or Al Jazeera, mm-hmm. whatever we're listening to by default, right? We're shaping our worldview by internalizing those stories and right. the stories right. we tell about ourselves. They right. say history is written by the winners, right? So history right. is just right. a story that we tell about ourselves. Yeah. So right. sorry to preach, but I think I've always been aware of it, but writing the book made me kind of really buckle down and outline all the different ways in which life really is story. And Mm -hmm. we create by default, if we're not aware of the stories we're absorbing Uh, earlier, I said like, you know, crabs in the boiling water Mm -hmm. or fish Mm -hmm. breathing invisible water. So I, I I really started taking responsibility for my own narratives. Right. And those Mm -hmm. threadbare drums that I beat about my childhood or about my Mm -hmm. past, about my upbringing and, you know, learning, and I'm mixing metaphors here, but learning to, like, uh, stop replaying those old warbly records ad infinitum. Sure. So sure. start with the long answer, but I think writing the book really uh, was a great opportunity to connect dots and mm-hmm. uh, solidify my opinions about the role story plays, again, for the individual and on a societal level. 
Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And we are going to be discussing your, like say, two books. One is a fantasy approach and the other one is real life situation. So when you look back in your life, are there pivotal moments where fantasies and reality intersect? You know, again, a great question. And uh, we talked about that a bit earlier. So I started formulating a few thoughts on it. At first, I had a little resistance because fantasy is not a word that I really throw around a lot. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. as a genre or in fiction, right, it's obviously yeah. my, the name of Prince is by definition not just fantasy or magical realism, it's called. Yeah. <clears throat> it's yeah. urban fantasy. Of right. course, I didn't know that when I wrote it, but I was told we're going to market it as urban fantasy. What I will say <laughs> is as a child, I read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I right, grew up right. on C.S. Lewis and Arnia Chronicles. Yeah. I loved fantasy as a child. And yes, I would say I escaped into it. You know, in junior high, mm-hmm. we were for it's called USSR, Uninterrupted Silent Reading something. And I reread Lord of the Rings for my entire three years of junior high because mm-hmm. I loved returning to those worlds. And there was a solace to be had there, right? Right. So I would say as a teenager, I escaped into fantasy. So for that reason, of course, many of my influences are the C.S. Lewis's of the world and, (laughs) you know, the Narnia Chronicles and everyone from Shel Silverstein to Roald Dahl. And so I am a lover of fantasy. But when I wrote The Nameless Prince, it really was, I guess, my first effort at fantasy, and I had my influences, however examined or unexamined they were. Mm-hmm. And I was conscious from what I can remember. I, I was like, hmm, I, I do want to write a through the rabbit hole tale, like the ones I enjoyed as a child. And, you know, Indian in the Cupboard and um, even Bridge to Terabithia, if anybody's read that, where you meet a sage in an unexpected place and you go through a portal to some other realm and you learn or gain some wisdom that you then bring back into everyday life and apply. Does that make sense so far? Oh, yes. And the, yeah. the thing so about it's a very it also, familiar template. It's not the hero's journey per se, but I call it through the rabbit hole. So no I was conscious about that I you know, just wanted to honor those stories that I loved as a child, uh, and I counted them influences for sure. But when I wrote it, I drew on life experience with every word. So not just mm-hmm. every passage, you know, it, my descriptions were all from life. It felt inauthentic not to do that. So I don't really parse between fantasy and reality, and that probably says a lot about me. I'm very aware when I'm writing literary fiction, it's called, or even narrative nonfiction essays, which are meant to be 100% autobiographical, right? So, but that's just defined by genre. So when I write a narrative nonfiction essay, there are still choices to be made. There's still artistic license. Uh, it happens all the time. If somebody reads one of my narrative nonfiction essays, they're going to say, oh, that's not how I remember it, or that's not how I would characterize dad. You know? And that's the danger of writing from life, is um, you want to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly and be authentic, but it's a huge risk. Sorry to go on and on, but even in elementary school, they made us read something, I don't know if they're still assigning it, but it was called Harriet the Spy. Right. And her diaries got her in a lot of trouble. So there's a lot of responsibility that comes with telling the full truth in your writing. I wouldn't trade it for the world. But my point is, I don't parse between fantasy and reality. I I am making a point here. So I was on a podcast a while back uh, with a wonderful gentleman that mm-hmm. I really connect with. And he said something similar. He said, um, you know, there's a lot of truth being spoken in the seeker, the, the book that I'm promoting now. He said, there's right. a lot of truth being spoken, even though it's invented. And I had the thought, you know, there's, there's more truth in abstraction, right. Than there is in the empirical world. So mm-hmm. to get a little bit mm-hmm. philosophical, mathematical axioms, kind of defy flux. They defy perspective, semantics, Mm -hmm. right? Circumstances and conditions. One and one will always equal two. So that's a big part of my worldview is that actually the only thing that's true is abstraction. (laughs) Because everything Mm -hmm. else depends on how you're looking at it, what perspective you're looking at it from. 
again, right. circumstances and conditions. So that's a little bit of a, a parable for there's a more truth sometimes being spoken in a really great hero's journey. It's just elevated. The stakes are elevated, if that makes sense. So oh, in the definitely. future, yeah. I very much sought to draw on life experience, but truly the principles I was conveying are what, where the truth lies. Some people say art is artifice, right? Other mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. say, no, art reveals the truth despite our biases and, you know, our, our perspective. And so I'm a big fan of art as truth, if that makes sense. So oh, yes. I'm very aware yes. when I'm writing in a genre like fantasy, and it feels very actually freeing to have regiments. It sounds counterintuitive, but I like genre writing because you know the goal. When you're mm-hmm. writing narrative mm-hmm. nonfiction or anything that's uh, not genre, I call it literary fiction. Right. It's kind of daunting because the world is your oyster. There aren't conventions and traditions to fall back on. So Mm -hmm. start with the long answer. I am a lover of fantasy, but I suppose in life, I don't really think about it much. I just, I think I see things that other people don't and I always have, and I don't know any other way because I've only been me. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think much about Am I delusional? Am I am I indulging a fantasy here? You know, and what is the harsh reality? I just think right. life is what you right. make it. Life right. is what you make it. Right. And what the beauty of it, though, Dominic, is this because I think uh, you shared a lot of insights on whether a story is a fantasy, uh, the delivery of a story is fantasy mm-hmm. or say real life situation. The message is the same and is empowering because what happens is that when you're growing up, when I was growing up, you know, we watch a lot of the cartoons or, you know, whatever you call it, right? And there's mm-hmm. right. take-home values. There are take-home values that we, we absorb and we envision ourselves, wow, if we do this, we do that. And it's, it's empowering, and sometimes we need yeah. that. That's that little panacea that we need when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, interestingly enough, in uh, as you journeyed in your life, and you got to a point where there's a switch where I'm sure there comes a comfort, you know, to whereby you are able to flip and say, you know, I'm just going to write the real thing rather than from a a fantasy perspective. I hope that makes sense what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but I guess I was I was mm-hmm. offering this idea that and and it's it's a bit ironic, isn't it? But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more truth can be spoken in an invented scenario because you can up the stakes, right? Oh, no question. So oh, yes. If yes. inspiration is behind a story that you're driven to tell, that inspiration in my world anyway, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people tell stories just because they do have that childhood love of a given genre and they want to be part of it. But again, they may not have much to say in terms of, again, in my world, inspiration actually comes from the universe itself. Mm -hmm. So we're Mm -hmm. just like live wires or antenna. If you're really primed (laughs) and you're receptive, you're just serving the proliferation or you're serving collective consciousness, not to get too heady, but call it what you Mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. You're serving the universe by receiving it and then expressing it. So sorry to go on and on, but I feel like there is more truth sometimes. If you invent a scenario that is quote-unquote fantasy in order to impart that thematic content, it really is no different than setting it in the here and now. Perfect. The message, I hate to say message because it shouldn't be didactic, but if you're showing both (laughs) sides of the thematic content, you know, the flip sides of the coin, Whatever it is you're expressing, you're inventing the scenario that best tells that story, whether it's invented or whether it's really set in a realistic uh, setting. Right, right, right. So true. So tell us about The Seekers, because uh, we'll start with that and then we'll go into the other books. So tell us a little bit about that and then we'll go on from there. Okay, well, I'll try to keep it short. You can redirect me if I go on too long. But literally 25, 30 years ago, I I had forgotten this, but I had written my version of Icarus. So I'm not an expert on Greek mythology nor Minoan culture, uh, but of course, I'm intrigued. And, and the more mm-hmm. I learn, you know, there's so much truth being spoken, almost like the parables in the Bible. They're just so concise and encapsulating the human condition, you know. And so I've, I have 
you know, without exploring them too much, always loved mythology. Uh, and I like taking myths in isolation and looking at the academic interpretation, you know, like Icarus throughout the Dark Ages was moderation. Don't fly too high. Don't fly too low. Man was not meant, you know, it's about hubris, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Know your place in the universe. And, of course, that's very typical of the Dark Ages. Then in the Renaissance, it was looked at through a different lens. Well, I, I read it, and I looked at it in isolation, but then I looked at it in context. And I thought, oh, my God, this is, <laughs> this is about shedding the bad blood. It's about redeeming the sins of the father. Because if you look at all the messed up <clears throat> SHIT that Daedalus did in his career, he was always kind of making up for former mistakes. So in my world, oh, Icarus wanted to fly higher and higher and achieve, you know, symbolically achieve more and more mm-hmm. to redeem his father. So it, it kind of spoke to me at 20-something, and I wrote my version of it. Never did anything with it, and it collected dust. Well, over the pandemic, uh, I don't know where you're at, but in L.A., things opened up for five minutes, and I was able to go back to my gym <laughs> and mid pandemic. <clears throat> and I was reading Madeline Miller's Cirque. No, not Cirque, uh, Song of Achilles on the life cycle. And again, it's a bestseller. It's really done really well and spoken to people. And uh, it's mythic fiction by definition. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I listened to it on the life cycle. And it really rocked my world. I found it very poetic and just gorgeous, really beautifully written. And again, I, I thought, oh, I've got a myth in me. I want, I want to, I want to indulge that. <laughs> and I remembered that story that I had written about Icarus. So I dusted it off. It became just one chapter in this book. But in the true spirit of art imitating life, and if you're organic about the creative process daily, because it takes a while to write a novel, right? <laughs> so whatever <laughs> you're working through in your daily life ends up in there, whether you like it or not. So some of it, yes, was pandemic-inspired, and I was getting my catharsis by writing it. But I'm a writer who does those outlines and moves those three-by-five cards around and has a really strong structure before I indulge the story. And then I'm actually freer to access my intuition because I know where I'm headed. I'm not problem-solving along the way. So it just took on a whole new meaning as I was writing it because it reflected life. So... Basically, it ended up being what I call, you know, a parable for the spiritual journey that we all share. You know, mm-hmm. that's my description. But it has Wonderful. a lot of familiar milestones, whether, you know, you come from a Judeo-Christian background or, I don't know, more Eastern philosophy. I think mm-hmm. most spiritual tenets or most philosophic traditions would acknowledge the dark night of the soul and then the still small voice that comes in that darkest hour, little things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so like the alchemist, I call it, you know, it's a mythic fiction version of the alchemist set in bronze age Minoan culture. And it just kind of evolved, but I, to put it in really good company, I think it's, it resonates in the way that the alchemist might. (laughs) Uh, Sorry if, if that didn't kind of, put it in oh, a yeah, nutshell. Yeah, that's basically a retelling of Icarus, and the premise is, what if he didn't perish when he plunged into the sea? What if he was picked up by a passing mariner and went on to write his own story? <laughs> sure. I mean, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you gave us a, a snippet of what the Sikh is all about, because and the reason for that is it's a layup for the inspiration behind the language of the soul. So tell us about that. Well, again, I had, as I was writing The Seeker, it really felt like I was breaking new ground in my own creative process. I think everything I write feels like, oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever written (laughs) in the moment, right? And then later, you know, it may or may not be. But I I guess that's a good thing. You're inspired. And so it really did feel like um, inspired is the best way I can Mm -hmm. put it. And and maybe I broke new ground in my technique and my craft. I think... Mm -hmm. The more I write, uh, the more fluid my process becomes, uh, the better access I have to my creative process. So it just felt really mm-hmm. direct. I wrote it in two weeks, and The Alchemist was written in two weeks. Now, having said that, 
it's been rewrite after rewrite for several yeah. years. Sure. But it came out very direct and it just felt inspired. So I thought, well, I want to write about my, what I just learned, you know, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and more than that, and this hopefully will speak to people. I think during the pandemic, a lot of us just needed a reason to get up in the morning, right? We needed mm -hmm. inspiration. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so in the art, in the, in my animation community, which I still have one foot in, by the way, I think we artists needed to continue to inspire one another, one another mm -hmm. and remind each other why we do what we do. Again, yeah. why we tell stories. So there's a convention that I've been a part of since its inception about 12 years ago. It's called CTN, Creative Talent Network. And it's basically all my former Disney colleagues and Disney, DreamWorks, PDI, Pixar, Sony Pictures, a lot of animation artists. But of course, aspiring artists and students as well. So again, I've done, you know, lectures and portfolio reviews and panel discussions for 12 years with this uh, convention. Well, of mm -hmm. course, we couldn't do the convention during the pandemic. So the organizer decided to do an online version of the event, and I was asked to do, uh, you know, a several-part segment on story. Mm-hmm. So my familiar resistance kicked in and I thought, oh, we don't need another book on story, right? Like, there's so many and they all talk about the Western storytelling arc, but they give it a proprietary twist that makes it brandable. And mm -hmm. I just am not that excited by talking about technique or craft, as I put it. Mm -hmm. What excites me, as you know, is why we do it in the first place. So I agreed to do this online uh, lecture series but I made it about why we tell stories, the why part mm -hmm. of the equation. Anyway, it took a lot of work getting, you know, my thoughts together and do, brushing up and doing research. And when it was all over, I thought, you know, I need to do something with this. Uh, <laughs> the lecture series is online in perpetuity, but I'm going to make a book out of this. So that became Language of the Soul. Oh, fantastic. That's really wonderful. Beautiful. In the book, you talk about many things that, you know, how modern day storytelling and I guess different storytellings in terms of versus the old days of storytelling. How is it different versus the modern day storytelling style and the so-called old day storytelling? Is it still the same? There are some fundamental things that are the same and then of course. perhaps the of course. new uh, is very different. Yes. Well, thank you. That is a great question. And in terms of the premise of the book, I'm always going to go back to that. Um, sure. And it's just one way of looking at things. Yeah, again, connecting a lot of dots. But I think, you know, whether you oral tradition around the campfire, right, even pre-language, mm -hmm. we told stories mm -hmm. with images. Those first cave paintings of a buffalo hunt, it was a narrative scenario, right? Mm -hmm. But I would argue that, you know, from oral tradition around the campfire on, of course, it's served the same role for the tribe. Right. And it's evolved a little bit, but I, you know, I have my students the first day of class. Why do we tell stories? And you hear it all, right, from to entertain, which I bristle at a little bit, because <laughs> it sounds a little bit like to divert or to bide time, you know, but I, I'm a little more lofty than that. So I like to think, you know, most, a lot of students say to pass on information, can't disagree, uh, to pass on wisdom. So, you know, it might be literally information like how to rub two sticks together to start a fire, but it could also be how to navigate life. And so story has always been the way that we impart, right, life lessons, how to live mm -hmm. in the world is how I put it. But not just how to live in the world in terms of the human condition. I, I get a little wackier and I say how to navigate <laughs> the physical expression of consciousness. Right. Like Life is the physical expression of consciousness. How, mm -hmm. you know, and we're all, we find ourselves like deer in the headlights. How do we navigate this? So I just think it's always served certain roles in, on a tribal level. Now, mm -hmm. the book goes a little bit into the chemistry behind that. Right. right. When you sit around the campfire and indulge a story, You've got dopamine flowing and <laughs> epinephrine and uh, or on the other side, cortisol and adrenaline. And so there's a bonding, of course, that happens. There can be a thinking of brain waves. Uh, so it does serve the tribe in that it bonds us to our shared humanity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, the role that it – oh, so that hasn't changed in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And the way I put it in the book is like, you know, from that oral tradition through the latest, greatest – I used to say Matrix, but now that's outdated. But <laughs> whatever the latest, greatest Peter Jackson film, the action-adventure film of, of the moment is, I think mm-hmm. it's always been the same, but the format changes, right? The mm-hmm. tropes mm-hmm. change. The techniques change. But I do want to say this. <clears throat> Quentin Tarantino, who you can take him or leave him. I, I think he's pretty genius, but he's kind of hit and miss for me. But, you know, he's well-respected. Mm-hmm. He's only done 11 films, and he's ready to retire. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, because I don't know what a movie is anymore. <laughs> and I will admit I feel the same way. So without going into too much detail, Sure. With all the streaming avenues now, right, and distribution being sort of muddled, right. things are hybrid release, very few theatrical releases, but even the writing. If you watch a really great Netflix series, it's genius. Episodic serial writing is, is a science, mm-hmm. and it's really genius in terms of the cliffhanger that keeps you coming back, and I really come to respect some of the writing for streaming, mm-hmm. but it has muddied the waters. So for me, being the elitist that I am, like, where's the artistic integrity and the literary value, right? All these lofty things that I always thought constituted Mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. It's a little confusing right now. And frankly, it's a bummer. I don't know if I want to be a part of it. So Mm -hmm. I want to end this on a positive note, but I think things are always redefining themselves. Now, you may or may not know, but there's a writer's strike. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm our, aware of our that. storytellers are in peril. So it mm-hmm. makes everybody question, what is our current? What is our value? Studios are literally saying in the midst of this strike, oh, y'all are a dime a dozen. We can create AI scripts <laughs> in a heartbeat. It's not so the same. So think of it this way. <clears throat> AI can absolutely cobble together old, tired tropes, right? Mm-hmm. They can do a Hallmark movie with the dude in the, the lumberjack and the plaid yeah, sweater yeah, that comes yeah. into the, the inn. And <laughs> they could do it in the film noir context yeah. with uh, really sharp dialogue. And so right. it's true. AI can cobble together old tropes and create a quote-unquote story. For me, what's missing is not so much the artistic integrity or the literary value or the human touch. It's literally the human touch that we call inspiration. I hinted a moment ago that inspiration actually comes from the universe because it Mm -hmm. knows what it needs in our dialectic. It knows what's needed in our evolution, so it demands it from an individual to be expressed. That's that's not there yet with artificial intelligence. So uh, sorry for the long answer, but I do think things are really at a pivotal moment right now where hopefully we're going to reassign value, reassign currency to the human element, and that is Mm -hmm. inspiration. So I have a wait and right. see attitude. I'm not going to stop telling stories. Of course, I'm going to keep doing it. But <laughs> yeah. I just hope people, you know, maybe this is a nudge to read again. Maybe people actually start reading again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, the difference, and I speak now about the human asset versus the AI asset. And the beauty of it in the end, uh, whether whichever way you want to look at it, we are, you know, uh, in the people business. So people mm-hmm. eventually buy from people. <laughs> That's the way yeah. Well, I hope people you know, recognize <laughs> something. The humanity is missing in some way. Right. Right. You know, right. you can't control right. the patron really. You can just control your intention as an artist. Precisely. But I agree. Precisely. I think it is going to be a nudge for people to really, even if it's unexamined, they'll go, what is missing mm-hmm. here? <laughs> what is missing yeah. in this formula? Yeah, and maybe they'll gravitate toward what just feels more inspired, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference because when you look at in depth, that human touch is still there. Be as it may, however you want to call it, it is still there. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading *Language of the Soul*? Well, maybe a little bit what I just said, which was a little <laughs> preachy, but you know, maybe an awareness. Mm-hmm. of what does constitute, I hate to be in too much of an elitist, but what what is the difference between entertainment and art? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was raised with an elitist mentality in art school, 
I can't help it, you know, but I do yeah, think there are yeah. certain, there are certain um, indicators. Uh, and so I hope, you know, people become aware of what's propaganda and what actually might have artistic integrity and literary value. And I, right. in my world, that's, again, what contributes. Again, without being too didactic or um, moralistic about it, uh, back in the six, I was born in 68, and right around that time, a football player called Dave Megacy wrote uh, the first novel about the institutionalized violence in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And his premise was, you know, we were habituating people to accept the war in Vietnam at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way. Again, there's no good, bad, right, or wrong kind of story to tell, but there are certainly those that can feed an addiction to cortisol and adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're just blowing, I keep S H I T. Keep blowing things up for two hours. Mm-hmm. What are you imparting other than habituating people to violence <laughs> and feeding this cultural addiction to adrenaline and cortisol? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, maybe an awareness of the type of stories we're driven to consume, mm-hmm. but also the types that we're driven to tell. And yeah. I guess it, it does go on and it takes it out of an entertainment context, out of a literary context, and it just kind of nudges the reader to, I don't know, examine the ways in which we absorb story by default, whether it's mm-hmm. the stories we tell ourselves, right? About, oh, yeah. I was born a poor, you know, I was born a poor child in the South without food on the table, and therefore I've always felt less than, and, you know, stop. Right. Telling those stories and, and write your own story. And that's what Icarus is about. He went on to write his own story, to self-create, to dovetail mm-hmm. with the status quo, dovetail with the universe and self-create. So they're both kind of the same message, really. The Seeker is about our powers of self-creation, despite fate or destiny as we perceive it, or even the status quo and how we're actually here. It, the way I put it in The Seeker is, the gods want us to co-create with them. That's why we were given right. free will. Right. So anyway, I guess the message of language of the soul is somewhat the same, using my experience yes, on yes. the seeker as, as the premise, uh, mm-hmm. that just be aware of the role story plays in our lives. And I do think it will give people a whole new perspective and give them some tools to self-create, despite, again, living in a bubble, applying what I call confirmation bias all day, every day. We all do it, mm-hmm. right? If you're watching mm-hmm. nothing but Fox News all day or even MSNBC all day, you're living in a bubble. Right, right, right. And, right. you know, everything you see when you go out into the world is confirmation bias. It either confirms right. your existing beliefs or you just right. don't even perceive it to begin with. So right. I guess right. what I hope it does is nudges people, you know, to be aware of the role that story plays in society and right. in their own lives. Right. Well, you put it in a very artistic way, and I tell people, you know, the idea is that in anything we do, we want to make an informed decision, right? So how can you make mm-hmm. an informed decision? Are you going out there to, in the course of trying to, like you say, validate what you just learned? Now, if you're going mm-hmm. on, the, you know, on the specific side of the equation, then it, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> but what if you jump on the other side of the in the river banks and kind of take a look at for yourself? Then now you have both sides of the equation, and then you make your own determination, basically. Yes, and I and I would add to that. Uh, we live in a divisive moment, right? Mm-hmm. You keep hearing that. Oh, it's getting more and more divisive. Right. I think. Mm-hmm. The divides are imaginary. They're, right, they're an illusion. Right. That's the irony. Right. So right. with a subtle shift in perspective, right, you can be a little mm-hmm. more judicious mm-hmm. about every, you name it. But I, right. I think you name right. a societal ill, and I'll trace it back to an inability to apply what's called divergent thinking, mm-hmm. right, where you assimilate mm-hmm. all the different viewpoints, and you're mm-hmm. sort of judicious about it. So yeah. I think, mm-hmm. yes, it's human nature to see things in terms of black and white. There's something called identity politics. We all want to belong. Yeah. So right. whether it's a political platform or an ideology, we mm-hmm. want to bond with those who are like-minded. That's what I think the pandemic is nudging us toward is more convergence. Right. Right. We're right. on the verge of ushering out certain things that haven't worked 
<laughs> for <laughs> centuries, I would say, in mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian Western European traditions, like right. patriarchy, like right. convert, like divergent thinking, right? right. Like black and right. white. So right. anyway, I think right. we're saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. Where can someone go to buy your books, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, of course, both books. <clears throat> so sorry. Both books are on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and Lulu. So I, I will probably put some links, or you maybe already have in the mm-hmm. description here. But um, just a search on Barnes and Noble or Amazon or Lulu will bring up The Seeker or Language of the Soul. But as a hub, my own website is just dominicdomingo.com, and there's a Fantastic. subpage for my books. There's a tab at the top that says books. So Dominic with a CK, domingo.com. Fantastic. What's next for you? Well, I'm really enjoying promoting the books. Um, you know, you spend so long and pour your heart, soul, and blood, sweat, and tears into something. The rewarding part is sharing it and, and hopefully seeing it land. So mm-hmm. I'm actually looking forward to continuing to do things like this and getting the work out there. Um, other than that, if you have a rich uncle that wants to finance my next film, I would, I would make a film. Fantastic. <laughs> That's wonderful. As we close out this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Oh, man, a recipe for living. <laughs> I have no answers. Boy, I wish I, I had some answers. It, and that's been a little bit of a, you know, some in terms of manifestation, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people want the key that's not going to necessarily lead to contentment or inner peace or well-being or tranquility, but what's going to get them the yacht, right? Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the mansion on the hill. <clears throat> and so I feel a little sheepish sometimes because I'm not Tony Robbins and I don't have the landing pad for my helicopter, nor do I have a helicopter. I'm not J.K. Rowling in terms of how my writing is being received. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep telling stories rather than waiting around to be loved. And I think there's a message in that, right? Mm-hmm. You can't wait around to be loved or for validation, or you can't wait for the physical indicators of quote-unquote success. I think we need to keep creating. That's going to be our way out of you name it, right? If we end up mm-hmm. on the verge of a zombie apocalypse or whatever kind of apocalypse <laughs> seems to be on the horizon, it's going to be creativity that's our way out, right? right? The one person that thinks outside the box and remembers how to rub two sticks together to start a fire, that's going to be our savior. Sorry to get preachy, but I do think creativity is going to be our way out, and it always has been. Right. No, no, no. My right. recipe for life is create. Fantastic. That's true. Very, very true. As you are the author of your tomorrows, guess what? You're also the director and actor yes. of that I love movie. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so and that's you know, they say um don't beat the drum of a problem that produces very few results. You beat the drum of the solution. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you know, by and again, I I use my art. That's my contribution. Mm-hmm. But right. God knows it takes a village. So that's I correct. really respect militant activists. I respect whatever your gift is. Follow it because, again, the universe knows what's needed. So if you were given the gift of being more of a political activist than I am, that's what you were meant to contribute. So I do think it takes a village. Follow your muse, whatever it is, and be authentic. It sounds cliche, right? But be true to yourself, be authentic, and that's exactly what the universe is demanding through you. So true, so true. Well, Dominic, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me. I'm from My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Wednesday morning, June 21st at 10 a.m. Central Time, U.S. My guest will be Ria Wong. Ria is a leadership coach fundraising executive coach, and marketing branding for fundraising experts. Rita brings 15-plus years of fundraising experience to help them tweak their message, clarify their ideal donor, engage their board, and streamline the process. 
Rhea and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and the release of a new book, Get the Money, Honey, and how nonprofits are contributing to building a better world. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dominic, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.